Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Money Talks. My name is Hugh Meyer. Hope you're doing well. Uh, excited to have you with us today. Just to remind everybody, Money Talks was established to help connect elite entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and business experts to small business owners and talk about how they've been thinking creatively during these really disruptive times. I'm very excited today because I have on with me one of my business partners and the CIO of Charlesworth and Rugg, Cyrus Amini. Cyrus, how are you today? I am uh, doing all right, all things considered. Um, really can't complain. It's uh, you know another another busy week. Um, it seems to be the uh, the endless year, but um, all in all, things are going really well, and uh, I'm happy to uh, happy to be here on the show with you. Thank you uh, again. Like I said, really excited to have our discussion today, um, Cyrus. Just tell tell our audience a little bit about your background before we get into our discussion. Sure. Uh, I'll try. I'll do my best to give them the abridged version. So um, I've been CIO uh, at the firm for uh, about two years now. And then prior to that, I was the uh, director of research for, I think, about three or four years. Um, my entire career has been in finance, uh, but for, uh, I guess what I would call a, a relatively short pit stop uh, in law school where I got by law degree from Boston College and then uh, took the New York State bar exam. So um, please don't hold it against me for being a, uh, a licensed attorney. But if it's any consolation, uh, I don't practice. Um, I also got my CFA um, while I was finishing law school and, and starting work with Charles Worth and Rugg. So I've been a charter holder for several years. So uh, one could say I have, I guess, far too many letters associated with my name. Um, also, uh, probably goes to show that I enjoy reading just a little bit too much. But um, my experience is, is almost entirely in, in finance and then also in, uh, in economics. I got my undergrad degree in, in econ from University of Pennsylvania. So, um, and to, to go even farther back than that, uh, my mom was actually an emerging market uh, bond trader way back in the day for uh, for Chase Manhattan Bank wow, okay. before it became part of J.P. Morgan. So uh, you could say it uh, it runs in the family. Well, see, I, you learned something new every day. I did not know that about your mother. So that's very interesting. Thank you for that. Yeah, war stories to be traded another time. But yes. I, uh, some of my some of my earliest memories are on, uh, you know, trading floors, both in London and in New York. So uh, not to say I spent all my time wandering around uh, trading floors in the 80s unsupervised because I think uh, we all know that that would probably be unhealthy. Um, but uh, <laughs> I did get some uh, I did get some exposure when I was young and, and it was uh, something that always stuck with me. And, you know, I ended up being a, a bond trader myself for a few years at Bank of America when I first started my finance career. Yeah. So I want, that's what I wanted to get to a little bit before we start, because you and our other partner, John, um, had an interesting foray, I guess, into the finance world, cutting your teeth, both cutting your teeth at a time where uh, it was it was panic. It was the great financial crisis. <laughs> so maybe take us back to that and, and talk to us a little bit about your experience at B of A as that kind of helps into our dovetails into our conversation. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to uh, talk about PTSD. Um, yeah, we, um, so I grew, John and I graduated um, from Penn in 2006. Um, so really into the, uh, you know, the teeth of the bull market, as it were. And within the span of, 
you know, really two years, you know, summer of 2006 to summer of 2008, you know, it was truly the best of times uh, and the worst of times. So um, I did, uh, I went to work for Bank of America on their high yield uh, bond and derivatives trading desk, um, which was just about as much fun as it sounds like. Um, it was uh, definitely a trial by fire. And John was doing uh, real estate, um, private equity, for a firm that's now part of Bank of New York Mellon, I believe, and he was doing real estate M and A. So we were in, um, you know, pretty different parts of the of the finance pool or pond, so to speak, but both on the institutional side. So, you know, he got to see the crisis from. Uh, we both got to see it from up close and personal. You know, he got the benefit of seeing it from, you know, the real estate side, which for, you know, for obvious reasons was, you know, one of the more direct uh, vantage points uh, for that particular crisis, given that it originated in housing. And, and I got to see it from probably the second most uh, direct vantage point, which was in, in corporate credit. Um, and also, you know, we sat, Right near the, um, the, the structured credit guys, um, the, the mortgage guys, um, you know, all the different trading desks that B of A at that time were kind of on the same floor on, on 57th Street in New York. So, um, it was, um, you know, it, it was panic. Uh, you know, it was, it was pretty wild. Um, you know, I, we got, I think about, you know, let's call it just under a year of calm times. And then for me, at least on the credit side, Starting in about July 2007, things started hitting the fan. And, um, you know, it all, you know, as with the credit market in general, you know, it all kind of went downhill from there. So I, I did a, um, you know, I don't want to drag people into the weeds and, and put them to sleep, but it was a lot of, you know, uh, credit default swap risk management. It was a lot of, you know, figuring out how risk management systems works on the trading desk and, uh, you know, trying to mark positions to reality, believe it or not, um, because the the models, uh, the mathematical models themselves had broken um, because, you know, credit had had cracked um, so precipitously that the models could not keep up. And so it was it was scary. Um, it was really exciting as well. Uh, and it was a great environment for me to um, for me to cut my teeth and to learn. Um, but let's just say I'm thankful I don't have to wake up at 4.30 every morning to catch the uh, the R train uh, up to 57th Street um, to make it to work uh, by 5.30 a.m. So uh, very thankful uh, to, to have a different uh, lifestyle these days. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Uh, it, it, interesting story. Um, you know, We've unfortunately in the financial world have become accustomed to you know crises over the last twenty years. We had the the internet bubble, the tech bubble, which which is the start of my career. Then we went into a calm period. Then we had the great financial crisis, and then we had you know the longest running bull market of all time. And then all of a sudden, in February of this year, in March, we had the unfortunate pandemic, COVID nineteen. And that obviously brought on, you know, some his, lack of a better word, hysteria in the markets. And since that time has created this dichotomy that, you know, you and I and our investor investment committee have had discussions on on a weekly basis as far as 
the real economy going in one direction and the stock market going in another. Why don't we uh, delve into that a little bit? Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, it'd, it'd be my pleasure. You know, there's a lot to uh, to unpack there, so I'll try to um, you know try to keep it as succinct as I can. You know, it's um, you know for just for general context, you know, and and you may uh, have have felt it a bit differently. You know, uh, I know that with my uh, credit hat on, you know, the 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 feeling in the market. Um, in in the first half of March, leading up to really that March 23rd um, inflection point where the Fed kind of stepped in and, and took some extraordinary measures, um, was uh, the most that it felt like the great financial crisis um, since the great financial crisis. And in some ways, um, it, you know, it felt worse. And, and statistically, if you look back at the numbers, um, in in quite a few ways, it, it it was worse in the sense that you know the the speed with which um, uh, you know fixed income assets, equity assets, um, everything really just fell off a cliff um, with an unbelievable amount of speed. And you know over the course of I want to say I think you know ten days, um, you know it was either you know ten to fourteen days. You had, you know, three or four of the of the of the biggest down days in certain markets, and then followed by some of the biggest up days. So every morning you'd wake up, and it would be either, you know, minus five or plus four, um, often with no real <laughs> explanation to accompany it. So uh, I think hysteria was the right term, uh, you know, and and thankfully. The Fed did step in um, very aggressively, um, as did Congress, to be fair, um, to to smooth over the markets. And and what the Fed really did was, you know, in in that you know second half of, of March timeframe, um, they stepped in and uh, dusted off the entirety of their playbook um, that they had created for handling the great fi- uh, financial crisis. Um, and implemented it in a matter of days, as right. opposed to I think last time it took them, you know, uh, you know, let's say roughly, you know, six months, yep. you know, uh, from from start to finish, to you know, activate the powers under I think it's Section thirteen three of the Federal Reserve Act, and then to put them into play. Um, this time I think they did it in like nine days, something like that, maybe even less. Um, so the, the 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 speed with which they were able to respond is is pretty staggering. Um, and it was, you know, it had the effect of, of calming the markets down quite quickly, um, although it took a little while for kind of a rally to mentality to take hold. Um, but I do think it is very telling. And we've talked about this quite a bit. You know, it's, you know, you the, the Fed, uh, you know, kind of tipped their hand a little bit, you know, two intermeeting uh, cuts in a row, you know, right back down to zero. Um, you know, that's, you know, if they call, you know, what Mario Draghi did a couple of years ago and the ECB, you know, bringing out the bazooka, I'm not sure what weapon you would refer to here, but the Fed really um, put it all out on the table. Uh, and and that has, uh, I think, has laid the foundation for the market regime that we find ourselves in now, which I think you had, had mentioned a minute ago was kind of this disconnect between uh, between Wall Street, uh, you know, meaning kind of, you know, S&P 500, you know, equity and fixed income prices um, and Main Street or, you know, what we see going on in, in, in the regular parts or the, the typical parts of the, the macro economy. Yeah, I think uh, it's, the, you know, it's the question that I'm asked most often um, when I'm just talking amongst colleagues and friends is, you know, how is this possible when, you know, 
the job market continues to obviously it's not what it was in March and in April. It's slightly better, but there's still, you know, several million jobs that have not been recovered. But yet we watch, you know, specifically technology stocks um, continue to rise unimpeded um, as people keep questioning, well, how is this possible? Um, maybe you want to unpack that a little bit. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to. I think, you know, we'll, um, we'll put the issue of tech stocks off to the side. You know, we can touch on it later if we want, or maybe we touch on it in a future conversation. I think, you know, there's, there's a whole lot going on there, um, both with respect to their business models, um, with respect to their relationship to the rest of the market, um, especially the equity pricing, um, and then also their relationship to, um, uh, regulatory agencies and, and regulation and perhaps right. more oversight from the government. So we can, we can maybe touch on that a little bit later in the extracurricular section. But for now, I'll, I'll kind of focus on the, the broader market dynamics. Um, you know, effectively, you know, what we, what we saw in, in the March, uh, and April and May, you know, as we went from, you know, uh, you know, thinking that we would perhaps be spared the the worst of the uh, of the disease um, as it was spreading from China to Europe and kind of slowly across the globe, and then the realization that it was here on our shores. You know, kind of having a um, you know having a reactionary um, uh, effort to deal with it as opposed to being proactive. So uh, no political bias here whatsoever, just kind of epidemiological fact in the sense that we were a little bit behind the ball and unfortunately it cost us greatly. So that resulted in the shutdowns, you know, of social distancing, which we're all far too familiar with now. You know, I myself, I, you know, I've been in quarantine or effective quarantine for uh, truly almost seven months now uh, because one of my family members is immunocompromised. So I get it. You know, it's it's tough. And uh, and the impact it had on the economy, on the Main Street economy, was uh, it brought it to a complete standstill. And, you know, the uh, I don't remember exactly what the final um, second quarter uh, GDP number was. I want to say it was something like minus 30, 35 percent, something like that. Um, you know, the lowest, um, if not in uh, the modern uh, economic records of the U.S., uh, certainly the lowest since the the Great Depression. So that tells you something in and of itself. And uh, the difficult, uh, kind of the one of the more difficult parts of this pandemic's effect on our economy is that so much of our economy is service driven, services driven. So it is, um, you know, whether it's going to the movies, whether it's going out to eat, whether it's traveling, um, you know, uh, you know, all different types of entertainment, um, all of these or many of these uh, industries rely on person to person interaction and, and, and typically, you know, within six feet person to person interaction. Um, so that, uh, you know, all of those industries coming to a standstill plus flights coming to a standstill, um, plus people effectively, you know, um, you know, sheltering in place, right. um, either by as mandated by their governments or, you know, out of an abundance of caution, um, you know, that was the greatest, um, that has been the greatest experiment in, you know, stopping a, a, an economy in modern history. Um, it, it's never really happened before, to my knowledge. 
um, a, a lot of people drew parallels back to, you know, the 1918, um, you know, the, the Spanish flu, you know, pandemic right. that was that ravaged, uh, you know, the world. Um, but, uh, you know, that was a different era. And so we'd never seen it in the modern era. And, it, and I, you know, it, it caught everybody um, off guard. And one of the lessons that we learned was that, you know, if you stop um, or try to stop, you know, the economic engine um, that has uh, almost always, you know, even if it's whether it's moving slightly downward, uh, sideways, slightly upward or in, in a more acute angle in any direction, it's always moving. It's very it's never just stopped in its tracks. And that had um, repercussions and it reverberated throughout uh, every aspect of our society, um, you know, from healthcare um, to travel, to interpersonal relations, to, you know, meeting your neighbors for the first time. I met some of mine. They were lovely people, um, met them from a distance, but still it was nice to put, you know, a face to a house. Um, you know, it's, it, there have been some silver linings here and there in, in various areas, but, um, ultimately it, it, it stopped the real economy in its tracks. And it injected a lot of uncertainty into our economic environment. And there's a lot of different ways that, in, uh, that we in the finance industry are either asked to define risk or are told to define risk. But when you really break it down conceptually, I think in the first principles uh, concept um, or approach, you know, risk is really uncertainty. Um, it is, you know, the the possibility of uh, of not knowing or you know not being able to attach solid probabilities to certain outcomes um and and when things are chugging along relatively you know normally and air quotes um you know business leaders and economists and you know whole armies of you know um data engineers um you know work uh you know continuously to put those types of projections together in order to plan for you know business expansion, for hiring, for producing products, whether it's you know Amazon, IBM, or the government, um, they're all doing some sort of planning. When you take something like you know COVID and you throw it into the mix, and you have a complete standstill for a short period of time, and then a, a very uncertain path forward of recovery in terms of you don't really know what tomorrow is going to bring let alone, you know, next month or two months down the road, that's really hard for, um, for business leaders to plan for. And typically, if you look back at, at history, when faced with that type of uncertainty, business uh, owners, business leaders, and, and, and corporate America in general, um, you know, when, when faced with that kind of uncertainty, they're going to take those actions they deem necessary to protect their companies and to keep them from going bankrupt or becoming insolvent. And so usually that means, you know, hiring freezes, um, you know, laying people off, um, you know, cutting any uh, costs that they can, um, you know, reducing CapEx, um, you know, all things that, um, that have a very immediate impact on, uh, on the real economy, on the people that work at those companies, especially in the service industries. Um, and it also, you know, it should, in theory, have an impact on their um, on their equity and bond prices as well. Right. And so, you know, what we, you know, kind of the 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 question at the heart of this is, you know, why the disconnect between, you know, I would say continued pain on Main Street 
you know, a lot of people still out of work, many people still sheltering in place. Um, you know, uh, most places, you know, most states, you you still can't really go out and uh, and eat at a restaurant if you would even want to. Um, I, I guess it depends on the state and your opinion on things. Um, so you you've got a lot of um, you've got a lot of restrictions that are still in place that are unfortunately um, you know preventing the services economy um, and and also the economy in general from recovering to its pre-crisis you know let's call it trend line or its norm. Right. Uh, there's no rule there's no rule that says it must return to that level. But, you know, in finance, everybody loves to talk about mean reversion. So for lack of a better story, everyone will tell you, you know, event, you know, when are we going to get back to the growth trend line as it was in, you know, January of, of 2020 or, you know, when I, you know, pick your time period. The short answer is I don't know. And uh, and, and that those effects are still being felt on Main Street. Unfortunately, you know, some of the programs from uh, from Congress, you know, they acted very swiftly. Right. They, they they put a lot of money towards the, the problem to try to help, um, you know, workers and to help Main Street. And I think they their their hearts were in the right place. And I think a lot of it was well aimed. But a lot of those programs are coming to an end now. Right. Um, unfortunately, alongside the the end or at least the planned end of a moratorium on evictions from from people's uh, uh living places whether they're uh, you know rented or not so um you have a lot of people that are uh, either unemployed underemployed or are living under the shadow of um of higher costs and not enough income no immediate prospect of help from at least the federal government, at least as of, you know, yesterday and this morning, they seem to be kind of stalled on on stimulus talks because there are many other things going on in government, which seems like uh, the most obvious statement of all time. Um, <laughs> and so that, so unfortunately, that is where Main Street is right now, still hurting, right. still dealing with the repercussions of everything that happened when we jolted the economy um, to a halt in in uh, February, March, April, um, and we've learned the hard way that you know restarting, uh, especially a services based economy, is not as simple as pumping money into financial markets, which right. kind of give, you know I don't want to give away the answer too quickly, but that is um, you know really the the differentiator between uh, the the two. Um, the two areas. So in the the real economy, meaning, uh, you know, Main Street, uh, meaning employment and, you know, the ability to uh, consume. So the data you'll see in retail sales um, uh, and uh, and you car sales, et cetera, um, you know, that data um, has strength has strengthened from the lows, but has begun to weaken again. Um, whereas, um, you know, there last couple of weeks, we have seen some, some more volatility in equity and fixed income markets, but, um, you know, from really, you know, April on into, you know, really July, August, it was, um, you know, I think it was something like a 55%, uh, rally, you know, trough to peak, something like that in equities with, you know, the U S tech stocks leading the way. And I've also fielded the question from from quite a few people, and we've discussed it many times. You know why the disparity? And ultimately, I, I think it, it it truly does come down to 
there's more money being put into those markets by, um, well, I'm going to call them non-economic actors, which means, you know, this isn't, um, you know, these aren't mutual funds right. um, acting on behalf of investors. These aren't, you know, other advisors like ourselves, um, you know, investing clients' money. You know, these aren't hedge funds or asset managers investing all this money. They're all buying and selling and, and, and pursuing various investment strategies, but their activities don't account for the the um, the magnitude of the rise in asset prices, and so you know there there are various theories you know floating around out there, and and it's very hard to sort out the the signal from the noise to borrow from uh, Nate Silver, but uh, you know the usually the simplest answer um, is the correct one, and in this instance, it's the Fed. Um, committing to QE, you know, I think the, the 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 fun way to term it is QE infinity, which is to say we're going to, um, you know, rather than rolling off our balance sheet and and allowing treasuries to mature and mortgage-backed securities to mature, and then not buying more from the market, essentially um, they they were on track to remove more and more support from the market and let it, um, you know, kind of let it uh, find a supply demand balance on its own, which right. in a healthy environment is what you want. Um, instead, they immediately reversed course and then hit the gas pedal about as fast as they possibly could. And, you know, did more in the span of eight weeks than they had done in the past several years right. um, combined. And I think that right in there, you have the explanation for why the rise in inequity and risk markets, because when you add, um, you know, a, a trillion dollars plus worth of buying power from a non-economic actor who just happens to have a printing press nearby, um, right. that can lead to <laughs> that, that can lead to prices rising. Um, you know, it's a kind of a it's a separate discussion as to, you know, how much prices in the market have diverged from the intrinsic value of those companies. But, you know, in, in general, at least in the U.S., I, I think it's uh, I don't think it's an inaccurate statement to say that it is quite likely, um, you know, I won't give you an exact probability, but I think it's quite likely that, you know, price at this point in time does not equal intrinsic value for many companies. Um, tech stocks included. Um, so it's a very bizarre phenomenon to watch play out. So I apologize for the long-winded answer. But it's, it's um, you know, these are complex times we live in, and there's a lot of different factors at play um, that uh, that we have not seen before historically, except perhaps um, to some extent in the uh, in the financial crisis of 2008. Right. Thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, those that was an excellent you know, analysis of, you know, what the situation is right now. Um, and, you know, I, I think just to, in a, just to go off topic a little bit, I think people have underestimated the resilience of, of Americans. You know, the one thing I've learned from this podcast from a lot of our resources are, you know, there are people that are, are figuring out ways to reinvent themselves. So, you know, they're trying to accept the digital economy uh, you know, the digital age versus the past age, which is called the analog age. So, you know, small business are trying to figure out how to, you know, counterbalance what's going on in the real economy. And, you know, there are a lot of positive things that are going on. That said, you know, we're still dealing with 
with the realities uh, you know that are in front of us with you know fiscal and monetary policy so I mm-hmm. uh, thank you for that the next topic we you know we, we've been discussing you know you and I have discussed at length you know I don't think it got a lot of attention when it when it happened um, and what I'm referring to is you know every year the Fed and it's dignitaries, if you will, have a meeting at J- in Jackson Hole. And this is usually, at least in recent time, has become very publicized um, as far as determining the future uh, Fed policy. But this meeting in particular was very mm-hmm. significant with regards to how the Fed defined and manage its inflation target and what that means to monetary policy and what that means to the markets. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Oh man, that's a, that's all, that's a lot to throw at me, but uh, lucky for you, I love Jackson Hole. No, um, in all, in all seriousness, um, you know, it's a, um, you know, the, the fed and, and central banks uh, more broadly, meaning, you know, kind of uh, globally, have become uh, bigger and bigger uh, participants in, you know, kind of everyday life, right? You know, I, you know, I, I don't recall, you know, uh, 15 years ago or, you know, when, whenever I was in high school, um, you know, I, I don't recall, you know, opening a newspaper or opening the news on a, on a daily or weekly basis and reading every day about what uh, the central bank has done in the last 24 hours or what they're saying or what they're feeling. Um, you know, because that um, that dynamic didn't exist back then. So by way of brief background, you know, after the Greenspan era ended uh, and uh, Ben Bernanke took over, you know, he Greenspan was famous for um, saying a lot in terms of volume of words and saying very little in terms of the actual information he gave to uh, reporters and to the public. Um, and, you know, he, and I, I forget what they, whether it was called, uh, green speak or if it was just yes. called, you know, uh, you know, his own, his own language, but he was infamous for that. And he did that purposefully, um, you know, so that he could, you know, perform his duties as the chairman of the fed without, you know, giving up the ghost and, you know, basically tipping his hand to the public. Um, as once Bernanke took over and, you know, the fed began to adopt a policy of, um, of forward communication, which actually became one of their, you could argue that today it's almost their primary or their, their tool of first resort right. uh, when it comes to kind of hitting their mandates or, or managing their mandates as set out by the government. So, um, you know, ever since Bernanke took the helm, you know, and then Yellen continued this, and then, you know, Jay Powell as the current chairman has, has also continued this tradition, um, if not even expanded it a bit, um, you know, the Fed has been very proactive in their communications with everybody. Right. And, you know, they, they want the market to know with a reasonable degree of certainty what they're going to do or what they're planning to do and why they're going to do it. And, you know, so there's a, there's a whole legion of, of people out there, which I, I guess by default includes me, um, you know, Fed watchers where, you know, you look at each transcript and see what words they've crossed out and what words they've added in. And you see what speeches different Fed regional presidents have made. And really what, what it all boils down to with respect to Jackson Hole was that, you know, it was a culmination of, uh, you know, about, I think, at least a year and a half 
of of what the Fed called a uh, framework review. Um, so the Fed, um, you know, partly behind closed doors because you know they they're not under an obligation to to publicize uh, or to publish everything that they do, although they publish a good deal of it. Um, you know, they have a framework that they operate under in terms of you know trying to achieve their dual mandate, which by law. Um, is, um, you know, an inflation target of, uh, of approximately uh, 2%, was uh, a, a, a kind of capped at 2%. And we'll get into that in a sec. And then the other part of it was to maintain, um, you know, what's defined as uh, full employment or, you know, the, the natural rate of, uh, of, of unemployment, which I think historically is estimated to be somewhere, uh, you know, around 4 to five percent, and, and nowadays I think it's closer to four than five, but that's a that's a separate discussion. So, the Fed has had this dual mandate for decades, and um, they, in, in response to the Great Financial Crisis, they seem to implicitly add on a third one, which was, um, you know, help, uh, you know, maintain stability of financial markets, you know, maintain trust in the system. And that's what they've been doing uh, via QE, via their communications, via their, their, their all of their actions, um, you know, the slowest uh, rate uh, of um, or, or I guess the slowest trajectory of, of uh, policy rate increases um, in the modern era. Um, and they very they immediately uh, took the elevator back down to zero when they felt it was necessary. Um, so what the Fed did, um, you know, and I'm. Um, I'm sure there was some reworking of, of this of this uh, policy outcome throughout 2020 as they led up to Jackson Hole because of COVID. They um, they changed their framework a bit, and I think most uh, Fed watchers and most part uh, you know, pundits would say you know it was a it was a dovish turn, uh, which right. means uh, you know for just to, so that I don't confuse anyone, you know easier. Um, uh, uh, monetary policy and economic policy, it's, it's typically viewed as more favorable uh, to the economy. Um, you know, they want to, uh, you know, open the faucet, so to speak, um, and, and to, to bring liquidity into the economy and to make credit easier to get and, and thereby help the economy grow. So um, they had already signaled that with their actions earlier this year by lowering the, the rate, uh, the, the Fed funds rate effectively to uh, the zero to uh, 0.25% range, um, and also by unleashing QE infinity. Uh, what they did in Jackson Hole was, um, uh, I don't know if I would call it an evolution of uh, of their actions or, or from earlier in the year. I think I'd really just call it a, a, a clarification of you know what their intentions are going forward. Um, and one of them was definitely you know the continued use of um, forward communication and clear communication as a policy tool. Um, Jackson Hole, in general, uh, was actually a microcosm of that because usually it's a behind closed doors uh, symposium where the you know the speeches and the remarks are you know made available after the fact and they're not always made fully available and usually right. they go through you know compliance or vetting process. It was actually online this year. Uh, I know this because I was one of, uh, I think, a few thousand people around the world <laughs> uh, who uh, who who sat who sat in on their live YouTube sessions and and listened to all of them and then downloaded the papers and read the papers and um, you know they clearly want to 
uh, you know, be forthright and, and clear in terms of how they're thinking, um, you know, what the, what the intellectual or academic framework underneath their thinking um, is and, and what it might mean for future policy. And so after all of that, um, you know, what, um, you know, what everybody focused on, uh, understandably, was what Chairman Powell said, which was that going forward, the inflation uh, targeting policy of the Fed, rather than, um, I forget the exact wording, but uh, suffice it to say it was, you know, uh, they were looking to cap inflation as measured by core PCE, which is the personal consumption uh, expenditure. Uh, right. measure, I believe. Um, and that's the Fed's preferred measure for inflation as opposed to CPI um, or, or PPI. Um, so there, so previously it was, we're, we're going to try to manage inflation using our interest rate tools uh, and using QE potentially um, to, to keep inflation as measured by core PCE at or below the 2% level. Um, by way of context, we have um, uh, barely um, been able to hit that level, um, and we've never been able to maintain it there since the financial crisis. There have been brief periods, very, very brief, where we basically touched that level and then come back off of it, but we've not maintained it for any period of time. We have consistently undershot it by, um, you know, I don't know the exact amount averaged over time, but let's say by half a percent to a percent. So instead of having 2% inflation, we've been more in the 1% range, plus or minus half a percent, Right. Um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it really isn't. Actually, if you were to, you know, kind of, you know, look at it from an economics 101 perspective and to say, you know, what's a, what's a great, uh, or no, what's a, what's a pretty good environment for planning and growth and, you know, not having to worry about, you know, currency devaluation, et cetera, et cetera, you would pretty much ask for exactly this type of inflationary environment, low, contained, you know, no sign that it's really going to break out um, into an inflationary cycle. Um, and also there's, you know, that there was a brief worry of deflation, um, uh, more so around, I think, two, two and a half years ago. Um, but that, um, that went away uh, relatively quickly. So rather than having the cap at 2%, what Jay Powell communicated was that they would now have, um, I forget if they called it a exact, the technical term was a symmetrical target, or let's call it, you know, a, the, the target is still 2%, but now it can go above or below that rate of um, that target rate of inflation right. with the goal being that over a certain period of time. And I want to say it's um, I want to say it's three years, but it, it could be different um, that it basically averages close to 2%. So that might not sound like a big change um, to, to most people. I can completely understand why it, words wise, the, you don't sub that many in and out, but really what it implies is that the fed is, is telling us as clearly as it can that they are willing to let the economy and they will let the economy run at an inflation rate above 2% for a sustained period of time, you know, basically, you know, however long uh, they deem necessary um, in order to allow growth to occur, because usually um, inflation occurs alongside growth. 
Um, and then at some point, you know, if you look back historically, inflation can then outstrip growth. And then that's when you have the problem of, uh, of you know, kind of your currency keeping up with prices. And then you have to deal with, um, you know, rate hikes and, and all of that. But we're not in that scenario now. We're, we're in the opposite scenario. The Fed wants to encourage growth, um, not at all costs, but they want to be as encouraging as they can without being irresponsible. And by changing the, the way that they do inflation targeting, um, they do exactly that. Um, so it, it basically gives them greater degrees of freedom to say, hey, let's, let's let the economy, you know, and these are in big air quotes here, you know, let it run hot. Right. Um, uh, which, which is the preferred term for, for economists to use there. And, you know, uh, people, you know, took that with varying degrees of surprise. I think it's, it's worth noting a fun fact here um, that, you know, people think that 2% was a uh, was the product of a long uh, and difficult uh, deliberation among some of the, the best minds in American economic history. Um, it wasn't. Uh, we borrowed it from New Zealand. Uh, wholesale. Uh, so New Zealand was actually the, the country that came up with a target rate of 2% interest. And uh, everyone else picked up on it, including us. Um, and I'm happy to be fact checked on that one if anybody wants to uh, do that. <laughs> and, uh, and and let me know if I happen to be incorrect. I'm, I'm happy to have that debate. Um, but I'm fairly certain that's that's how it happens. So it just goes to show that even something as important as the target rate of interest for the U.S. central bank, which is the biggest and most important central bank in the world, um, wasn't even created by them. Right. It was borrowed from an academic who said it in New Zealand because it seemed to work. Um, so, you know, these are, um, you know, these are ideas. These are theories. And, you know, when the world changes, you know, due to technology or, or, uh, or demographic reasons um, uh, or cultural reasons or, or any um, you know, you've got to, you've got to update your models. You've got right. to mark your models to to reality, <laughs> as I found out the hard way in the financial crisis. And, and now, you know, we're, you know, the Fed is, uh, has been, you know, fighting a very difficult battle um, of, of trying to keep the economy as stable as it can. Thank you for that. Yeah, that actually is going to, is a great lead into our next topic. But before we do that, uh, you know, why, when you're not you know, sifting through endless Fed research papers and the latest from <laughs> uh, macro managers, you are a pretty avid international football fan. Notice I, you know, for our listeners, I did not say soccer. I said football. Um, Cyrus is a quote, he's not a quote, unquote, he is a diehard Arsenal fan. So when we're not doing this, he spends quite a bit of time watching uh football overseas. Don't, uh, why don't you uh, give us a little bit of a background on that? Yeah, that's you've, you've called me out correctly. Um, uh, for those of you out there who who know English football, um, or as the Americans like to call it, we Americans like to call it soccer. Um, even though I was born in New York, I, I grew up, spent five years living in London when I was younger. So my first memories are of London um, and also of trading floors in London. Um, and uh, my best friend's uh, when I grew up in London, were Arsenal fans, and so as as these things go, um, I became an Arsenal fan too. And fast forward, uh, you know, fast forward thirty one, thirty two years later, I'm still an Arsenal fan. Uh, I've been through the best of times um, and have uh, been through now 
um, a decade of what I will say was uh, was very painful for the first seven years, and the last couple of years have been a little bit better. A couple of trophies on the shelf never never hurts. So uh, yeah, I um, everybody unwinds in different ways, and you know I've I've had a passion for playing soccer and and watching soccer. Um, you know I don't want to confuse people that happen to tune in at this exact point in the conversation by saying football over and over again and leading them down the wrong path. So. Um, I've, uh, I've spent uh, countless hours, uh, watching soccer. And also, um, I've been to the last, uh, I've been lucky enough to attend the last four world cups. Um, and, uh, actually with one of our, uh, other business partners, um, John Rugg has, has joined me on those trips, um, with a couple of other friends of ours. And that's, uh, something I plan on doing, um, as long as I am, uh, physically and, and hopefully financially able to, <laughs> but, um, it, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a lot of fun, um, to be able to focus on something, um, outside of work. Um, uh, and, you know, I love the, there's a, there's a big statistical element to it now. Uh, you know, anyone that's read Moneyball can kind of understand um, what I'm talking about. You know, they've, they've really applied <clears throat> modern statistics and, and health science to all sports um, and definitely soccer. So, you know, watching how far these guys run, managing their energy levels, you know, trying to prevent them from getting injured. Um, it's, it's pretty fascinating. And, um, you know, I would say there's actually two very interesting uh, elements of uh, being a football fan or being a soccer fan that apply to, um, you know, my work or, you know, our work in, in finance. Um, one is seeing the reaction or the response of the, um, especially the English professional leagues to, um, to COVID when it, uh, when it right. first emerged in Europe in, in March, because it directly affected uh, the entirety of their season. And they had to shut down for, I think it was a little over a month. And then they managed to work out an agreement to restart the season and to get it finished. Um, but they had to, I believe that, so they had to cancel or move the, the European um, uh, international tournament to next summer and right. this summer. And they had to play all of their games um, without crowds, which was pretty stunning. Um, and they, and they made all of the games available. Um, they aired them all at different times so that people could watch all of the games. So it was, you know, you could see that uh, a couple of different things there. One, you know, the, the, the public health aspect of, not allowing crowds in to see their teams play, even though they would, you know, given the choice, many of them would probably risk it and would still pay a lot of money to go do it. Yes, they would. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, probably myself included, but that's neither here nor there. Um, uh, you know, uh, two, you know, the the ability, as you said, for when you know their backs are up against the wall, you know, they were able to figure out a way to. Um, to continue the season and to finish it and uh, hats off to Liverpool who won their first league title. And I believe about 30 years um, long overdue um, very dominant performance this season. They've got a stellar squad and they just beat the crap out of us uh, yesterday, three, one. So still smarts a little bit, but I'll, uh, I'll live. Um, and the other part of uh, the equation, which um, hasn't been in as much focus this year but I think has been very symptomatic of um, of the global economy and the risk economy over the last 10 years is uh, the price or the value of football clubs and the players. 
Right. Um, and for, I assume most of our listeners are, are American here. They might not know that, um, you know, in, in Europe or really around the world, um, uh, there are, um, uh, football players are actually assets. Um, uh, and, and that's not my opinion. That's, that's how the market works. Right. So you, a team, uh, you know, my team, Cyrus's team, if I want to buy one of Hugh's players, I have to go to Hugh and I, and I have to say, and I say, okay, I want to buy, you know, uh, Ronaldo or Messi, you know, someone that hopefully people will, will know, you know, I want to buy him for 50 million pounds. Um, and Hugh will say, absolutely not. He's worth a hundred million pounds. Uh, I just so happen to be, uh, from a, uh, not unwealthy, uh, um, oil rich dynasty. And, uh, and I've got a hundred million pounds to spend. So I say, okay, sure. I will buy, uh, let's say Ronaldo off you for a uh, hundred million pounds. So Hugh, do you, do you accept my offer of a hundred million pounds? No, <laughs> for right. this, for, well, for our purposes. Yes. I'll say, <laughs> no, I, you know, I'm a tough, de- I'm a tough negotiator. Well, for a 30, for a 35 year old Ronaldo, I would probably, I'd probably acquiesce. So we'll, we'll say, okay, I, for the purposes yeah, of this uh, conversation. Uh, I would, I would hope you'd snap my hand off of that one. Uh, because my next offer is going to be 75. No. So <laughs> he drives, the man drives a hard bargain, but I, I, hundred million for Ronaldo. So, uh, people may think that that's the end of the discussion, but it's actually not. All that that's done is I, Cyrus's team have transferred, uh, have agreed to transfer a hundred million pounds, um, to Hughes bank account upon the contingent upon the successful completion of negotiations between my executive staff and Ronaldo and his agent and his business manager. And, you know, these players, you know, in Ronaldo or Messi's category get paid, um, you know, something like, you know, 300,000 pounds a week. Um, you know, you can, you can do that math. It is, it is an exorbitant amount of money. Um, you know, but, uh, that's, uh, I'm not here to opine on that. Uh, all I'm saying is that, you know, the, if you look at the price paid, the average price paid for players over the last 10 years, um, and really since Chelsea, uh, uh was bought by Roman Abramovich in the early 2000s, right. um, and, and more and more, uh, you know, uh, either, um, oil sheiks or uh, Russian oligarchs or, um, other business magnates have bought into different clubs. Um, you know, all of these asset prices have risen a massive amount. So a player that would have sold for, you know, um, or that, you know, let's call it a player asset, not to demean the players at all, um, that would have sold for, you know, 10 million pounds in 1997, that same player, um, you know, exact same player just transported in time, you know, 23 years forward, 25 years forward, you're probably paying 10, plus times that for that same player. And that's just money from one uh, football club's bank account to another, which is crazy. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a lot of money to spend for the right to have a player, to pay a player to come play for you. Um, so I, I've always viewed that as kind of one of those informal economic indicators that tells, uh, you know, that kind of helps right. inform me on which way the economic wind is blowing. And, and one thing that you've seen this year is 
because of the um, lack of crowds because or because they're not allowed to have crowds and, and also because of the natural cutback in, um, you know, kind of discretionary spending by everybody, but especially in those kind of in the lower 50% of the socioeconomic uh, spectrum, um, you know, these, uh, you know, th- these fees are, have been coming down a little bit for the first time in a while. Um, and they, many clubs have asked their players to take wage cuts um, in order to allow the club to, to keep running. Um, uh, admittedly, you know, a guy that makes 200,000 pounds a week isn't really hurting that much by making 175,000 pounds a week. But still, um, you know, I view it as a very interesting, uh, I, I would say, kind of unique uh, and different uh, view on on asset prices because, um, you know, one way or another, you know, football players, soccer players have also become, uh, I I don't want to call them risk assets, but they are assets upon which these club owners put a valuation on them and other, you know, market participants, i.e. other clubs, uh, either come in and pay that or don't. So it's a, I I guess I've, I've successfully managed to take something super fun and make it extremely boring via my economic uh, le- lens, but uh, <laughs> it's a ton of fun. And, you know, in these days, uh, you know, more than uh, almost ever before, you know, we need, we need ways to, to spend our time, uh, you know, that are, you know, that are fun um, that, you know, that can take our mind off of everything that's going on in the world these days. And that's not to say we forget about everything that's going on, but um you know, you've got to, you know, you've got to find the the good things where you can. And and for me, uh, in addition to, you know, family, friends, and, you know, trying to, you know, stay in contact with people, which, you know, this enforced, uh, you know, kind of digital age has, has been good for, surprisingly. Um, you know, soccer is one of the ways um, that I that I do it. So it's, it's great. And I, and I think it's been a, uh, it's been a pretty good time for, for you too. He was a Real Madrid fan, is it not? Well, I, my my loyalties are divided in my house, so I won't uh, I, I I won't completely support the the Los Blancos. So I've got Barcelona and Real Madrid in my house, which is which is difficult. Um, so, but if there's one thing I'm teaching my my uh, sons, it's you know I I like to root for the underdog. So um, I will not swear allegiance to any teams um, in the Premier League or La Liga. Or in Germany or in Italy, um, I, I just I'm a huge fan of watching the game, and uh, you know I throw my support behind teams like Arsenal and uh, hopes that they can you know finish in the top four and you know continue to improve. I, I I think it's much more enjoyable to watch those clubs uh, you know who aren't spending you know untold hundreds of millions of dollars every summer. So with that. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. So I wanted to conclude on this subject, which actually could probably be another podcast in itself, um, <laughs> because our last two uh, questions, if you will, kind of both are completely connected to the dollar, the U.S. dollar, mm-hmm. which uh, you know is is always is continues to be more focused on and more discussed in macroeconomics um you know because of its impact on the world because of the fact that almost three quarters of global trade is conducted in dollars uh you know there's been talk of potential 
demise of the dollar, uh, you know, the federal government and the Fed continue to print. And there's a lot of mixed signals and there's a lot of maybe called controversial areas when it comes to talking about the dollar. But the subjects that we've talked about in this podcast clearly are kind of leading up to this. Let, you know, let's unpack kind of where we are with you know the dollar in the world and, and its impacts on, on, on global asset markets. Yeah, it's uh, you know that is a um, it's an expansive topic, um, and I'm certainly not a uh, you know a currency specialist. But um, you know, I think uh, you know, as you said, you know, we've all got to um, you know have some kind of opinion on the dollar, or at least an understanding of it, in order to in order to do what we do. Um, so I think you know I would I would start my answer by acknowledging the reality that you know the the dollar has been you know the world's currency since. Um, you know, really since World War II. And so, you know, we've enjoyed what, um, uh, I forget who, uh, who called it, who, who turned it that, but, you know, the exorbitant privilege of, of the dollar, um, you know, due to its being the reserve currency, you know, there are a lot of benefits to being the world's reserve currency that are, um, that are difficult to, to quantify. Um, and, uh, the dollar uh, had enjoyed a, a fantastic run over the past couple of years in terms of its strengthening um, for for a variety of of reasons, um, and and this is where it becomes tough to give you know one specific answer as to why it has strengthened or weakened over a given period of time, because there are so many different factors that come in. You know, are um, you know, the, uh, the, the valuation of, um, of other currencies, you know, whether it be the yuan, the yen, the euro, the Aussie dollar, the kiwi, et cetera, you know, the, the loonie, uh, sorry, the Canadian dollar, um, you know, you've got to take those relative valuations into account and there, the rates of inflation in those countries and the interest rates in those countries all impact um, kind of the cross valuations of these uh, various currencies. Um, and then you've also got to look at, you know, economic growth, uh, you know, uh, across the world and within each, um, within each country separately. So, you know, what you've seen over the course of this year, I believe, you know, I'm, I, I, I don't have the, the data directly in front of me, so I can't give you a point to point analysis. But what you've seen this year is a, um, you know, is, is, is a weakening of the, you, you, there's been a strengthening of the dollar and then there was a weakening of the dollar. Um, and I, and, you know, the demise of the dollar has been greatly exaggerated. Right about about 50 million times now um you know i think you know the there's i think there were five or six years in a row between like 2013 and uh, you know and now when yep. uh one of one of the calls that i think almost everybody made or most uh, pundits made was oh this is the year the dollar takes a digger uh and uh <laughs> you know like clockwork the dollar just held right in there if not getting stronger so um so how to unpack that um, you know, there's a couple of different ways to do it, but I'll, I'll try to do it in the, the most efficient way I know how, um, which is to say supply and demand. Um, you know, the, 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 in theory, the more supply there is of something, of any good, um, the, uh, and assuming demand stays approximately the same, the price of that good, the value of that good should go down. 
So in an, in an environment such as this, where, you know, the, the Federal Reserve is, is printing, um, you know, billions, trillions of, of dollars, um, you know, we're issuing a ton of debt, uh, quite literally, um, tons of debt. Um, Money is quite heavy when you get down to it um, uh, in order to finance uh, stimulus bills and, and QE. Um, you know, it would it would make sense on a surface level analysis to say the dollar is likely to lose some value just because right. there's more of it out there. Um, and, uh, and then, so that's, that's a, that's a supply demand argument. And there's, you could make, you could make the counter argument as well that, um, which many, which has been quite successful many times, um, which is to say many dollar denominated assets are considered safe havens. So when events like uh, February and March occur or like the financial crisis or like the European sovereign debt crisis of, of 2011, um, you know, people tend uh, when when there's panic in global financial markets, um, one of the places that people run to with their money um, is uh, the U.S. Treasury market and also other U.S. dollar denominated assets. Right. That's a trade that's that's worked and that has been true um, for quite some time. Um, you know, for you could for decades. You know, there have been certain periods where it's been you know slightly less uh, strong than others, but you know, uh, I think generally it's it's been true. Only now, you know, this year have you started to see what I would call kind of some cracks in the edifice, um, which is not to say that the, you know the demise of the dollar is at hand. Right. Um, uh, because I don't necessarily think it is. Um, uh, but what I do think is that um, the U.S. has been hit disproportionately hard um, economically by um, the effects of the pandemic itself and also the, the after effects, kind of the reverberations throughout our economy. Um, and, and that's largely due to um, the fact that we are a services based economy, 70 percent plus of our GDP every year comes from uh, services-based industries. Um, so, you know, you can slice and dice that math in a lot of different ways, which I will leave to other economists and mathematicians. I'll just, you know, uh, kind of keep it uh, uh, at, at first principles levels for us so we don't lose our way. Um, you know, when, when you take a big hit to services, you're going to take a big hit to GDP, which is right. exactly what has happened this year. So, you know, the question going forward for the dollar is, you know, you've got more issuance, you've got more debt. Um, so you've got a more leveraged country. Um, you have probably the most uncertain political outlook that we've had since before I was born. Uh, you know, I, I was 84. So uh, I, I would say what, you know, Nixon, you know, kind of, if not Vietnam before that, was probably the last time we've seen, you know, you know, the, I won't call it civil unrest necessarily, but let's just say uncertainty and confusion with respect to America's political system. Right. Um, you know, that's that's something that uh, has been the stability of that system has been taken very much as part of the status quo and baked into our interest rates and our asset prices and the strength of the dollar for 40 years. And now, um, you know, quite rapidly, um, you know, over the span of a year, several of those assumptions or, you know, that, you know, the, the question of, you know, how safe is the dollar? How safe is the U.S. 
as a home for money from anywhere else in the world, you know, that question doesn't necessarily have a straightforward yes answer that you could immediately give. Right. Um, and that's, that's not my opinion personally. That's just, you know, what I'm, you know, what I'm reading and, and seeing in the markets. And, you know, these are largely, you know, theories because we're, we are in uncharted territory. So the, um, you know, the increased printing of the dollar, you know, it, it, you know, you kind of alluded to it in, in the question also brings up um, a, a, <laughs> uh, a fairly new uh, monetary theory called modern monetary theory, which is uh, if you trace back its genesis, it's actually evolved from uh, some ideas that first, uh, at least first came to light in the mainstream of economics, I think around 25 years ago, um, give or take. Um, and essentially the, the, the MMT ERS, as, as they're called, MMT being modern monetary theory, um, uh, ascribe or subscribe to the theory that, um, you know, that the U.S., because it issues its own currency, prints its own currency, and also issues debt in its own currency, um, can effectively print as much money or as much debt as it needs to or wants to to pay its bills. Um, because it isn't like uh, the view that they take is to say, you know, uh, to look at the uh, at the U.S. government or the, the the federal government as if it were a household that is constrained by an actual budget beyond which it cannot spend is the incorrect lens. Right. Um, you know, or, you know, my family can, you know, any family, you know, can only afford to spend, you know, whatever money they earn plus any credit or loans or debt that they take out. Same with um, companies. Um, same also with states and municipalities, because that's in uh, the, the state uh, laws and regu uh, regulations. The only entity or the only level at which that is not true by law is the federal level. Um, the U.S. government is legally uh, has not required itself um, to maintain a balanced budget. In fact, we have almost never run a balanced budget. Um, and so the MMTers would argue that having a balanced budget is actually a bad thing and that they would actually push for the government to run an even bigger fiscal deficit. And their argument would be the bigger the fiscal deficit that the government has, that means the more dollars are in the hands of the currency users which is to say, you know, the American population and the, any holders of U.S. dollar denominated assets, whether it be bonds, real estate, um, anything, right? Anything that is denominated in, in the U.S. dollar would fall in that category. So it's a very broad theory. And, um, you know, I've, I've done a fair amount of studying on it, and it has some very intriguing ideas. Um, you know, I'm not going to uh, endorse it. Um, you know, I still like to think of myself as a as a as a nuanced and, and very avant-garde uh, Keynesian with uh, with with some Austrian leanings, but um, I, I'm not going to uh, divulge my uh, <laughs> my my <laughs> my economic religion at this point in time. But suffice it to say, I think it's really hard to find one theory that explains everything. Life is just not that simple. Um, economic models. Um, reduce many things down to try to reduce many things down to their simplest form, when in reality, they're, they're at their most complex.
you know, it, it all boils down to, you know, the, the market is from any market is comprised of uh, humans. Uh, and these days also uh, algorithms uh, right. uh, or, you know, com- computer driven uh, decision systems um, that help determine prices by buying and selling. Um, so, you know, no one knows how to model the human brain yet. <laughs> um, I wouldn't rule it out at some point in the future, but I doubt we'll see it in my lifetime. And uh, it's a, it's, a, it's very difficult to, um, to try to, you know, project out and to see what will happen. Um, but I think, you know, the, the lesson to take away from kind of this third question about, you know, what's going on with the dollar um, is that just because, we have enjoyed the, you know, I'll, I'll use it one more time just because it is a, it's a good quote, you know, just because we've, you know, uh, we've enjoyed the exorbitant privilege of the dollar for so long, you know, since the end of World War II, that doesn't automatically mean that that will continue, right. in, uh, you know, in, in, uh, indefinitely into the future. Um, you know, that's a privilege that, you know, you've got to, we, um, you know, regardless of whether it was earned or given, it has to be maintained. And uh, I don't know how to do that. I'm not sure any one person does. Um, but the most dangerous thing you can do when you're uh, investing and thinking about uh, markets and, and all of the events that are going on in so many different uh, areas of our lives these days, one of the worst things you can do is, is make assumptions um, and to count on assumptions from the past continuing to be true no matter what. Right. Because there is no there is no rule that says that is the case. Um, you know, unfortunately, many you know small business owners are finding this out the hard way. Um, and, and we're trying we're doing our best to help them and to get, you know, to, to give them advice and to point them in the right direction to uh, to help them navigate, um, you know, the, this crisis, these really difficult times. And we're also doing the exact same thing um, with respect to, you know, the, the capital that our clients have entrusted to us, you know, find a way to navigate through the uncertainty as best we can. Um, and, and one of the key tenets of, of doing that is to um, assume as few things as possible and, and not to take, uh, you know, don't take uh, what is it, uh, uh, past results or no uh, guarantee of uh, future, future returns, right? But right. one of yeah, yeah, future performance. One of the one of the uh, uh, best, uh, most fun <laughs> disclaimers in 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 all of finance. So, um, you know, it's uh, I think what you said earlier about you know um, people finding a way, you know, when their backs are up against the wall to make the best of it or to you know to make good decisions and to um, hopefully get out of, of of tight scrapes. I think it's it's very true and. I think in, in many ways it's, um, or at least in some ways, you know, it's uniquely American. And I think it was, um, I want to say it was, uh, it was Churchill that said, uh, something along the lines of, uh, you can always trust the Americans, um, to do the right thing, uh, but only after they've exhausted everything else. Um, and I think that's a pretty fair synopsis yeah. of how, of how we roll. Um, for better or for worse. Uh, so we are, you know, there's no lack of trying, uh, both in the government and from business leaders and the economy. But the truth is, you know, we, um, you know, we face a lot of uncertainty, um, and both politically, economically, um, globally, um, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of questions out there and there are not many answers. Um, 
so there's a lot for us to, you know, to, to pick up on in, in future conversations and anyone who I haven't put to sleep by now, um, I'm sorry if I didn't succeed. Uh, uh you know, I would, I, I would give a plug, I, I would give a plug for, a for a good meditation app if you really need help sleeping. But, uh, uh, I can always, uh, I can always do more economic theory to help if you really need it. So, uh, hopefully that was, uh, hopefully it was informative. Um, uh, and I apologize if I went off into the weeds too much anywhere there. And I'm, and I'm always happy to, um, to answer questions or to, to have follow-up discussions with anybody on, on any of these topics. Um, so, uh, Hugh, hopefully we can, you know, let people know, uh, in the show notes or in the, in the pod notes, you know, where they can get a hold of me if they should happen to have an interest in, uh, the history of Jackson Hole or other such fascinating, uh, events and items. Thank you. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, really appreciate the time and your thoughts today, Cyrus. You know, that's again, that's why we created this podcast was to, to be a resource to, you know, small business owners to bring on resources to connect to small business owners. You know, you're obviously an amazing resource to our clients, but not just our clients, but to anybody in general who, you know, wants some unbiased um, opinions about what's going on in the, in the world of capital markets. You know, obviously we've covered a great deal today and, you know, we will definitely have you back on as these subjects, there are a myriad of these subjects and they will uh, be going on for the foreseeable future. So thank you for uh, taking the time today. We appreciate it. Of course, it's, it's my pleasure. And before I leave, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to help you kick off a little tradition, if you don't mind, Please. a tradition that I'd love for you to carry forward. So I am, I don't know about you, but um, uh, pretty much everyone I know, including myself, is always on the search for media something to consume, right? We're stuck at home all the time, way too much time on our hands. So, you know, I've, I've, um, in other interviews, I've heard, um, uh, the interviewers ask, you know, kind of at the end, you know, what are you streaming? You know, what are you watching? Uh, you know, what are you listening to podcast wise? Um, and, um, so what are you, what are you watching or streaming? What are you listening to? And, and what's something really good that you've read lately? So, in that vein, uh, you know, maybe I can give some recommendations to people if they want them. So, um, as for what I'm streaming, um, it is, I'm almost guilty. Uh, I almost feel guilty about admitting it, but I won't. So, uh, my <laughs> wife and I have actually, ha have actually taken to watching and I think it's on, it's on Netflix. This is not an endorsement for Netflix, but you've all got it anyway. So it doesn't matter. Um, we, uh, kind of randomly started watching designated survivor starring Jack Bauer, AKA Kiefer Sutherland. All right. Um, and it has actually turned out to just be 24. Uh, I don't know if that show rings a bell for people kind of just before the digital age, but phenomenal. Yes. Um, and, and it's basically uh, Jack Bauer as president instead of a counterterrorist agent. Um, and still with all the zany antics and basically every single episode there is some major world crisis of some kind that has to be saved. And instead of killing people and torturing them uh, this time around, uh, I guess it's kind of like the West wing in which he is having intense, deep breathing uh, negotiations with people and getting out by the skin of his teeth. But you know what? It has been surprisingly enjoyable. And uh, especially given everything that's going on in Washington these days, um, it's, uh, it's pretty refreshing to, uh, 
to, to have some view of the White House that is uh, that you can smile at. Um, uh, so I, that's that's what I would recommend for streaming. And then for um, for listening, I've actually been listening to um, uh, what's his name. Um, there is a podcast called Pivot, P-I-V-O-T, which yep. is um, co-run by Kara Swisher, who's basically the definitive uh, um, uh, or the authoritative uh, journalist that's in Silicon Valley. That's right. And and Scott Galloway, who's a professor at NYU, who is one of the sharpest marketing guys and one of, I think, the most outspoken and intelligent voices with respect to technology, education, a lot of other modern trends um, out there. And he's also written a couple of books. One of them was The Four. Um, and then the other one was the algebra of happiness. Um, and he also has his own podcast, but I'm not going to do two. So pivot would be the podcast I would recommend. They are absolutely hilarious. Um, and then as for reading, I feel like I almost am obliged to, um, to provide something that is, uh, financial in nature. So what am I going to go with? Um, oh, you know, I actually just finished reading, um, dark towers which is okay. a book by David Enrich, who's, I think he's the finance editor at the New York Times. I think he used to write for the journal, but it's the story of Deutsche Bank, um, uh, it, historically. Um, and it focuses a lot on some more modern stuff, um, including some things with respect to our current president, but um, it isn't a political book. It, it really is the story of Deutsche Bank, um, uh, and uh, this guy's also written about uh, the LIBOR uh, fixing or manipulation scandal right. in a book called The Spider Network. Um, so both are great, but um, Dark Towers is the newest one. And I think it just came out like a couple months ago and uh, pretty, I mean, pretty amazing and fascinating what goes on inside these institutions. So I apologize for prolonging the the end of the podcast, but I would say uh, if you've got time, watch some Designated Survivor. Um, if you want to learn, uh, some, some good stuff, some current stuff, and also laugh while you're doing it, listen to pivot. And if you happen to love reading financial history, <laughs> um, or you just like a good story in nonfiction, then dark towers is a good stop along the path. Well, well, thank you for that. And I will definitely, uh, keep that tradition going because, you know, I've taken notes there and, uh, I look forward to creating a colossal list to give out to people uh, once I compile it. So thank you for that. My pleasure. I'm, I'm happy to help. And, uh, you know, thanks for, uh, you know, thanks for the time and the, the questions. And uh, I really appreciated the chance to, uh, to come on and just, you know, have a great conversation with you. So, you know, stay safe out there and uh, to everyone else, you know, listening, stay safe and, uh, you know, keep your, uh, you know, keep your spirits up as best you can. And if there's any way that we can help or, or be of service, um, don't be bashful. Let us know. That's right. Thank you again, Cyrus. Remember everybody to please subscribe to our YouTube channel, smash the like button. We'll be back with another episode next week. Again, thank you again. My name is Hugh Meyer. This is Money Talks. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye.